2: Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. It's new magazine week, Rulo 120, the Tours edition, is now thudding onto doormats around the UK and the world. Just like last year, our Tours edition is two magazines in one. We've got two front covers, one for the Tour Homme and one for the Tour Femme, and the two magazines are upside down in relation to each other, if you see what I mean. I'm biased, but this is a lovely magazine. The covers are beautiful and the features are really wide-ranging, with, I hope, something for everyone. I'm joined today by James Start, Rouleur's roving photojournalist, who is not roving this week because he's got three, four weeks of roving around France coming up. Probably needs at least to get his laundry done. James, how are you?
3: Yeah, good. You're right. The tour of France that's coming up is four weeks because we get down there on the Wednesday before. And I just came off of the Criterium de Dauphiné and the Ventoux race and and some other things. So I've got a little window here and I'm going to make the most of it.
2: So James and I are going to leaf through Rouleur 120 and talk about the features and we'll include a few interviews we've done with various writers and interview subjects as well. So 120 years of the Tour de France this year it's also 120 editions of Rouleur. The first thing I want to mention about this magazine is the cover or rather the covers. Our art editor Enric Adele came up with the idea of illustrations of bouquets of flowers that's what's presented to each rider who's involved in the podium ceremonies at the tour and we also made a companion feature which we'll talk about later but just for the covers we have these amazing beautiful illustrations of yellow flowers which just exude summer to me and they're by a Madrid based illustrator called Laura Breitfelt and this James is one of my favourite ever rouleur covers
3: it's lovely it's, it's so rouleur in some ways because it's so elegant and yet it's so out of the box I mean I don't think I've ever seen any features that focus on the flowers, the bouquet of the tour. And like you said, every rider who steps on the podium gets one.
2: Uh, so we're going to go through the mag in chronological order. Tour um first, tour Fem second. Although there's significant overlap in quite a lot of the features. But we're going to go through uh, the tour homme first. Lead feature in the tour homme half of Rouleur 120. I think I'm pronouncing my halves <laughs> the french uh-huh. way there james uh, so it's an interview and photo shoot with Tade pogarcha which was done by you james so how was Tade pogarcha james
3: it was done by me um it was tremendous he makes bike racing look so easy and he's still so young i mean he's still going for the white jersey's best young rider so in some ways he's such a kid and yet he's obviously such a mature bike racer. I mean, he just has, understands the games at such a high level. He's always well positioned and knows when to make his moves um, and makes very few mistakes. Obviously, last year's tour was an example where he made one very big mistake in the Alps. But for somebody so young, he's just a brilliant bike racer. And yet I haven't really gotten a good glimpse of who he is, what drives him and where he comes from and what he's about. And... I tried to scratch that surface. Uh, we got a nice little sit down night before he won at Flesh ballon and it was tremendous. I you know, I, I don't pretend to know him intimately, but I do think I got a better sense of who he is. It was a lot of fun just to have a chance to sit down with him, and he gave me some real good insight about that bad day uh, in the Alps, uh, and about some actual, you know, some hardships he's had in life, because you know, although he's always got a big smile on his face, life is not all about smiles, and we talked about that too. I thought it was a, a really, I thought it was, it was a tremendous uh, sit down. It really came away uh, with even more respect for him. And I hope the
2: readers do too. Yeah. Well, the headline is Who is Tade Pogachar? Do you think you found out?
3: I would not pretend to say I know who Tade Pogachar is. That would be, I think, presumptuous after a half hour. Uh, but I do have a better sense. He reminds me a bit of a young Peter Sagan. They are just so young and talented, and yet they're just very fun-loving guys and, they, and they're having fun on the bike and they're having fun in life they want to have fun in life and they want to embrace it he is who he is I, I think that we have a better sense of him after the feature
2: there's an interesting snippet actually that he said as a person and when he was a young sports fan he always sided with the underdog and he he said it's quite funny this I think he's got quite a clever sense of humor he said if I was a kid I would not be cheering for me which I thought was quite <laughs> quite knowing but it was pretty funny as well I love that. He's a very happy-go-lucky guy, doesn't take himself too seriously,
3: doesn't take winning or losing too seriously. I was there when he, the day when he crossed the finish line and lost the tour, and I mean, he was still so composed. And I spoke with his uh, team manager, Mauro Gian- Giannetti last year, and he says, you know, he's like, Tati is like the first guy I've ever met since Roger Federer, who he actually had known from being on the Swiss Olympic team. And he just has this aura around him. Nothing can happen that's that dramatic. I sense that more and more. So, you know, I have a world of respect for him. And he's a beautiful bike racer. And I love the way he races bikes. Um, but he's also quite a, a sensitive uh, individual and thinking individual. And I think we do see that more.
2: You're a Pogacar believer, aren't you? Rather than a Pogacar skeptic for this year's Tour de France, you think he'll be the main threat to Vingegaard God oh, uh, yeah. defending his title this year?
3: Absolutely, yeah. Obviously, he's got to get through that first week, but I don't see anything that's going to be too hard for him. And Jumbo has to work and, and win with the power of numbers, but they're going to be starting out at a handicap because they lost uh, Stefan uh, Kreuzfeld at the uh, at the Dauphiné. So um, they're not going to have the power of numbers to play with that they did last year. So I think he's going to be right there. He's good. I think he's still as much a man to beat as Vingegaard. Although, you know, as I just at the Dauphiné, I just saw Vingegaard (laughs) and he put on a pretty good show, too. So I think we're looking for a tremendous race here. I think that Vingegaard knows he has to come into this race with all guns smoking because he has to take time. I think it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be a great tour.
2: Well, let's hope that smoking gun isn't because he fired all his bullets at the Dauphiné. So from a two time winner of the tour to a five time winner. Olga Abalos the editor of our sister magazine Volata went and met Miguel Indurain for a bike ride and wine tasting in Rioja which is probably the job that I want to do. Her feature the man who can read landscapes is a two-parter. There's an observational third person account of riding with him and then an interview which is actually very interesting which hasn't always been the case with Indurain. So I caught up with Olga to have a chat about the piece and here's the audio from that interview. I'm joined by Olga Abalos, music and cycling journalist and editor of our sister title, Volata magazine. Olga had the chance to spend a bit of time with Miguel Indurain in Rioja recently for her feature and interview with a five times tour winner. So, Olga, thank you for being here. How are you?
4: Hi, Ed. A pleasure to be here again.
2: Good. Uh, So, first up, Olga, were you aware when you were younger of growing up in Spain about Miguel Indurain? Was he very famous
4: Yeah, yeah. Actually, one of my first uh, memories of cycling actually is, well, I can say the first memory is uh, Pedro Delgado winning his tour in 1989, I think. And then, yeah, years later, Miguel Indurain. I still remember watching him on television in July, you know, after lunch. (laughs) It was very hot (laughs) because it's always hot in, in July here in Spain. And yeah, and watching TV and and watching this uh, big guy dressed in yellow winning a race where the the Spaniards were not allowed to win during years. So, yeah, so I remember it was a big thing in Spain.
2: And where does he rank in terms of prominent sports people, not just cyclists, but sports people in general?
4: I think he was a kind of a, a hero for most people, and people get were interested in cycling thanks to Miguel Indurain, you know? It's like uh, maybe they didn't like cycling because it was, like, boring or they never found any cyclists that they feel they could engage with because, you know, they were all Italians, French people. So Miguel Indurain was, like, the first figure that uh, allowed a lot of people to get interested in cycling. So it went beyond cycling. He was a guy that... Um, How to say, it was like a good man, like a good guy. He's a a man of few words. He didn't say anything bad of anyone. So he was like somebody elegant, very charming, very close. A guy from the countryside. Most people felt very close to him.
2: And you called the piece The Man Who Can Read Landscapes. Where did that come from?
4: Because, you know, when I had the chance to go to La Rioja, I realized talking to him while we were riding next to each other, which was like an exceptional thing for me, (laughs) that uh, he was uh, like all the time looking around. And I asked him, have you seen the vineyards? Have you seen this? And he said, and he was like explaining me what's going on in those fields and with the trees and the vineyards and everything. So somehow I understood that he observes a lot. And his family has been observing the landscape for years because he's the son of a farmer. So he knows how to to feel, to read what is happening. And I thought it was a nice way to title the, the piece because beyond cycling, he's a man who likes to be surrounded by nature. And um, he never lived in another place. He'd always lived in, in Navarra actually. So So that means that he always been close to his roots. and and to his family's roots.
2: Yeah. Um, What was it like to spend time with him?
4: In the beginning, it was a bit like... uh, (laughs) uh, I was very nervous, I can tell you, because you never had the chance to spend so many times with somebody like Miguel Indorain. I had the chance to, to interview him once in the past, but it was only like 20 minutes, more or less. But this time, I wanted to go beyond because I knew that he was a man that he doesn't... He, he doesn't speak too much. So I was a little bit nervous to, because I really wanted to talk to him about certain things that I didn't dare to ask him in the first interview. So first I had to go in cycles, you know, ask him about his past, his family, the landscapes, you know, normal things you do when you ride on your bike. <laughs> and then I realized he speaks more than I thought. So if he feels comfortable he can be very sincere about things and very authentic. So you just need to spend some time with him. That's, I think that's a trick.
2: <laughs> he was quite famous for when he was being a writer for being not exactly a journalist nightmare, but he was very uncontroversial and tended not to say the most interesting things. And I always used to wonder, is he hiding the real Indurine or is that him?
4: I always thought that he was hiding the real Indorine, but I think there's a part of his story he doesn't want to explain, that's for sure, and I'm totally sure about that because this story uh, has to do with people f- that are still in the team in Movistar team, um, and you know, bad things that happen between them. You trust someone, and this trust these other people fails or somehow to you. And there's a part that he doesn't want to explain because it's a personal thing, and and I don't think he's going to explain it. But I think that it is what it is at the moment. And what I realize is that you know, talking about nice thing, I mean, normal things with him, like uh, like his children, his family, and everything. He said to me once, when I uh, as a father, when I got used to got, get angry with my children, he said, uh, I only say the things once. If you don't do what I say there will be consequences. But he's a man that he only says the things once. (laughs) And you can read between lines, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah. OK, great. Olga, thank you for being on Ruler Conversations. And thank you also for doing The Impossible, which was getting Miguel Indrain to say some interesting things.
4: Oh, thank you very much. I can tell you that after two glasses of wine, it's easier.
2: There's your secret. I'll take that tip for the future. Thank you, Olga.
4: Thank you.
2: So that was Olga Abalos. James, what are your memories of photographing Indrain and being around him? He must have been winning the tour when you started out in cycling photography.
3: Uh, almost. I was there uh, for his first win. He just dominated. Obviously, I remember looking back and the year before he had been riding for Delgado. And if you took away all the time that he lost sitting up because he was like in brakes and was sitting up for Delgado. He was a contender. And then he put it all together the next year and put it together for the next five years. What do I remember about him? A very classy person, very classy bike rider, but they were some pretty boring years. And I can't put all of that on Inderan at all. Um, The Tour de France at that time was designed in a way that was very monotone. It was just very formulaic. And every year you had seven to 10 days in the Northern Flats, and then you hit the Alps or the Pyrenees, and blah, blah, boom. And there'd be a time trial in the early days Uh, as well. And and Miguel would often pretty much (laughs) make a game over from the first TT. There was just not a lot of suspense during those five years. It was pretty crazy. But I did sit down with him once or twice and just always very kind-hearted, very, very respectful of the other riders. Didn't take his strength or dominance for granted, was never arrogant, never took, you know, cheap swipes at anybody or anything. I mean, I, I don't think I ever saw him angry once at another rider. He just didn't get that way.
2: So the next feature is my interview with Phil Liggett the voice of cycling who has covered I think 50 tours to France now. When I was growing up as a cycling fan in the 1980s Liggett was the commentator on the Channel 4 coverage in the UK so he's been a constant presence in probably one of the most important parts of my life for over 40 years and I reflected when I was writing the piece that I think I've known Phil Liggett longer than I've known any of my friends and I met with Phil Liggett earlier this year and we had a long, long chat which formed the basis of my piece and I'm going to play a few excerpts from that interview now.
5: My dad was a seafarer all his life and uh, so I never really got to know my dad. He came home for a few days and he was off again for three months because he sailed all the way in the 50s to Melbourne or Sydney or whatever, Sydney mostly. And then uh, he got paid an allotment, as it was called in those days. Every Wednesday was paid into the Cunard Steamship Company in Liverpool. And Mum totally relied on that income. She had no other form. She was not a well lady and she was never working, so it was all on my dad's allotment, as it were. So every Wednesday we used to go over to Liverpool and draw the money. In those days it was three US dollars to the pound. Ain't that way now. Because she was always afraid, it... uh, he wouldn't go back to sea because she was ill. Always forbidden for mentioning she was sick. She was bloody sick. She had a dual dean also in those days quite serious. She had a stomach removed, which was a rare operation. She was also knocked down by a bus, which she not know. Number 60 bus. And uh, anyway, she was, but a mentality was, she gave me my strength. Whereas my dad, as I say, my dad was my dad. He was a damn good worker. He was a perfect husband. But that was it. I never really knew him. It's like when you do commentary. I enjoy commentating, but if you go to bed, and you think everything you wanted to say today you said, you go to bed feeling very contented. So I think uh, if you're good at cycling and you get the ride, you come back feeling well. All oh, that training was worth it. You know, and I yeah. feel great. But I think basically, I think every professional cyclist likes cycling, and the fact that they became really good at it is the bonus and the icing on the cake. It's yeah. not. Um, Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to beat everybody in the world until you've tried riding a bike, mm. because it's really hard. Yeah, and um, so that was how it happened. So I became a, a journalist and completely changed direction. Mum was right, I was different. Mm. you know. And I have a, always had a policy in my life, is my nose dictates my path. The greatest call I ever gave, I guess, was when Le Mans won by eight seconds because I'd predicted he would win by six seconds, and he won by eight. Brian Venner, the infamous Brian Venner, was in London, put it over the key in my ear and said, next time, Liggett, get it bloody right. I, I broke down in tears. We had Le Mans jumping for joy in tears, Vignal on the floor in tears, right by my feet. They are memorable sporting moments. Paul and I was only his fifth tour as a commentator in 89. Ah, oh, fifth tour, so that's what that answer because I remember saying at the time, you've only been at it five years, Paul. My advice is you never get any better than you were today, so send in your resignation. nation. And we joked and laughed on the way home on the boat the next day. We actually wrote to Jean-Marie Bon and said, that was unbelievable.
2: So that was excerpts from my interview with Phil Liggett. And next up, James, is the feature that we did together. The headline on this piece is A Lighthouse. And this one is about the Puy-de-Dôme. And Puy-de-Dôme is a mountain in the Massif Central, which is famous in Tour de France history. And the race is going back there in 2023 for the first time since 1988. And I don't want to go into too much detail this time around because we're going to put out a whole episode on the Puy-de-Dôme in the next couple of weeks. But James, tell the listeners about the climb and its place in in tour history and culture.
3: Well, the Puy-de-Dôme is, is this epic climb that, is right in the center of France in the area of the volcanoes uh, in the Auvergne. And you know, it's not a long climb, it's only what, 5K max, but it is just unrelenting. It wraps its way around this old volcano and you can see the road like like one or two times, it just sort of wraps around it. No switchbacks or anything, it's just steep, steady climbing. And it's been the home and the stage to some epic racing. The most memorable, obviously, being the, the great duel be- between uh, Jacques Cotillo and Raymond Poulidor back in the 60s. The shots everybody remembers as of that, that duel. They were just like locked side by side, trying to get a little edge over the other one. The tour went there many times before and after. Um, Eddie Merckx had an epic stage here as well, and, and it, went, it went regular until 1988 when Johnny Welts uh, won it and a breakaway. We stopped going up it because it's a very narrow road. It's uh, actually closed to cyclists and pedestrians, uh, very narrow road. And it got a lot narrower in recent years when they put a, a little tramway train on it. We went up that, Ed. We went up it a couple times when we were down there. You know, there's a section of the road that's maybe not even two meters wide. It's a real feat that we're going back up. Christian Prudhomme came in and started uh, doing like double ascensions of the tournament and stuff like that. I, I've been kind of ribbing him going, and when are we going to do the Puy de Dome? And he was looking at me and his eyes were wide open. And then he kind of shake his head. He said, that one's really complicated because it's a protected part of uh, a land and the very, very strict controls of how and when you can go up it. Even the cyclists, they only had one morning for two hours before the Dauphiné where they could ride up it on their bikes, no team cars or anything. So it's very strictly controlled and, and protected. So the fact that we got to go back up again is uh, something I've been waiting for since I started covering the tour, and I'm very excited about this
2: stage. And it's a mountain with charisma as well, isn't it? Absolutely. It's
3: one of those special places, like, say, the Montfontu, is really a very special place to me. And the Puy-de-Dôme is that too. And it just towers over the heart of
2: France. And it's part of a range called the Chine des Puy, isn't it? It's quite, it's quite a beautiful corner of France. And yeah, it does get a fair bit of tourism from within France, but it's not so well known for foreign tourists, maybe. The Chen des Puy is a really... Fine landscape, isn't it?
3: It's a destination for nature lovers in France and people who really, you know, love deep France. So it's a special place. And obviously, you know, the tour is one of the best ways for regions and departments to to show off the beauty of their landscape. So that, I think, played a big role in the return of the tour to the uh, Puy de Dome. It's very exciting.
2: So we go now from La Chaîne des Pouilles to La Chaîne Simpson and Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, the artist, this Can only be our regular feature, James. Art cycle. So there's a, quite, quite a louche, dissolute individual who's an enthusiastic stalwart of the Parisian nightlife. But that's enough about you, James. Tell us about Henri de Toulouse Lautrec. Well,
3: I do, you know, I, I love this art cycle piece we've been doing. Each issue takes us to somebody different. I thought for the Tour de France, uh, it would be the for- perfect time to come up with this old. Fan du siècle illustration by one of the great artists of the late nineteenth century, when France was really the the center of the uh, creative and artistic world, or at least the Western world. I always loved uh, Toulouse Lautrec. I just forgot how much I absolutely love Toulouse Lautrec and and his sense of color and form and perspective, and the figures of everyday life. Be it that, be it, be it the nightlife of Paris, which I love and uh, still do to this day, or bicycle racing, which I love and still do to this day. So, toulouse trek, joining forces with my favorite sport was a win-win situation. And he didn't do a lot of bicycle racing, but I did discover that he was very passionate about it. He had uh, some real um, physical issues and was very very small and had circulatory problems and this and that. and. Sports was not really a reality for him, but he was passionate about it. And he went to a lot of the six-day races and a lot of the track races because he just thought it was beautiful. And um, that's where he met up with the uh, Simpson Chain people. And it was funny because the Simpson Chain was this chain that was supposed to be all, you know, super powerful and it had these huge triangular links. Every time I saw this illustration, I just thought this triangular link chain was was just his creative license taking hold and showing the jarring teeth of the chain ring and whatever. But actually, that was the way it was conceived. It was this chain with these huge triangular links. And it was funny because when you learn the story, you kind of learn who some of the cyclists are in the uh, painting or the illustration. Some of even the figures in the background, it was very um, anecdotal in a way, and yet it stands the test of time. I mean, it's just a tremendous representation of the bicycle and the cyclist in movement and the beauty and elegance of cycling. Uh,
2: in our tour on MAG, we've also got an interview with Carlos Verona, a fascinating piece by Colin O'Brien about Bidon and their place in cycling culture. Emilio Previtali, the editor of Rula Italia, went to the Willier Triestina factory. And there's also an explore feature about cycling in the Basque country, which, of course, is where the Tour de France Grand départ will be for 2023. So we're going to take a short break now, but when we're back, we will flip our magazines the other way up and have a look at the Tour Femme. There's great news for the Ruler Conversations podcast. Our sponsor for this episode is Caldera Lab. Caldera Lab have developed an exciting range of high-performance skincare products, which combine pharmaceutical-grade science with nature's purest and most potent ingredients. A leading clinical trial found that 9 out of 10 men experienced healthier and visibly improved skin after using Caldera Lab products. And we've got an exclusive offer coming up for 20% off Caldera Lab's best products. So, like most cyclists, I've spent a lot of time outdoors. Cycling keeps me young inside and very happy, but all that sun and wind does contribute to the aging process of my skin the laughter lines are a little more visible than they were 5 or 10 years ago. However, Caldera Labs sent me their Regimen bundle and I can already see the beneficial effect that it's having. The Clean Slate is a balancing cleanser that refreshes my skin. The base layer is a nutrient dense moisturiser which is quickly absorbed and just makes my face feel less dry. The Good is a night cream that reduces visibility of wrinkles and fine lines. And I also look and feel a lot less tired because the Icon Rejuvenating Eye Serum has taken down those dark circles and the puffiness around my eyes. Caldera Labs are also committed to transparency, sustainability and excellence, and they are on a mission to make men's skincare better. They use clean ingredients. They are a certified B Corporation and a member of 1% for the planet. So they're helping the world as well as the confidence of their users. Upgrade your skin and your confidence with Caldera Lab. Ruler Conversations listeners can get 20% off at calderalab.com with our code ruler. And that's c a l d e r a l a b.com. Go to calderalab.com/ruler and that's 20% off. Unlock your youthful glow and be ready for summer with Caldera Lab. This is ruler Conversations. I'm back with James Start for our look at Rulo 120, the tours issue. And now for the Tour Femme half of the magazine. So the first feature in the Tour Femme magazine is headlined Never Give Up, which I think just about says it all about the subject of the interview. It's by Jeremy Whittle, and it's an interview of French champion Audrey Cordon-Rajot. So in the last year, Cordon-Rajot has had two teams go bust on her which was b&b hotel which never really got up and running and the team zaf Uh, she's now riding with human powered health she also suffered from a stroke so she's had as hard a year as many professionals ever endure so james you did the portraits for this feature Uh, what was she like in person
3: she is just tremendous i went out and uh, did the trouble up in Brittany. And she's from there and then there was a day off in between and then she was gonna ride the tour of uh, Britannia. So I called her up and said, well, let's just meet uh, when I get to the hotel. And we spent about three hours driving around town, finding some spots for the pictures, doing some different kinds of portraits. And and then some of my favorite ones came of her, just just, it was raining up there as it often is in Brittany. And she just did her uh, pre-race ride uh, on rollers under the van's protection. And I thought they came out really wonderfully, but we also had a chance to then talk, um, you know, maybe not as in-depth as Jeremy did, but what a portrait of strength this woman is. I mean, she almost died a year ago. And then went from one team that busted to another and finally refound her footing. And when I was driving down to, uh, we were going down to this town and I said, so, you know, she barely raced this year. I said, cause she only got on this team right before paris Rube. And uh, I said, well, how do you hope to do here at the Tour Britannia, you know? And she didn't hesitate. You know, she just said, I hope to win. That's the way she is. Very easygoing, very, very easy to talk to. Grew up with cycling, her family introduced her cycling. She was four or five years old, always did it. It's her life, but she can talk about a whole lot of things. She's a a smart woman and obviously a very, very, very strong woman.
2: Jeremy did a great job on the interviews when (laughs) he actually He contacted me after the interview and before he'd written it saying, look, Ed, I need 500 more words here because they got through so much. Um, but, yeah, you know, what I find with Audrey codron is that she's very strong, very charismatic. And when she was riding with Trek Segafredo, she just filled that road captain role. You know, she wasn't one of the outright leaders of the team. You know, she's French champion. She's obviously a very good rider, but she's, she's not the Tour de France winning, classics winning necessarily rider. But she was still the person on that Trek team who I felt everything else went through. So she was kind of a fantastic teammate to have, very communicative, forthright and opinionated in, in in a positive way and just kind of, you know, was a real big personality on that team. This comes across in Jeremy's piece. She's had challenges and she's just come through them with heartache, obviously, but at the same time, it hasn't dimmed her kind of sense of optimism and... A sense of right and wrong as well.
3: Yeah, she's just... Uh, it was a real pleasure to meet her, and I felt like I had been in the presence of a very exceptional person.
2: So the next feature is very different from the first interview. It's by Maria David, her regular contributor to Ruler, who sent in a very rare interview with Jean-Étienne and Aurore Amori. Most Cycling fans will recognise the surname because they're the president and director general of ASO which of course owns and runs the Tour de France. So theoretically, these two individuals are two of the most important people in cycling. So ASO, MoE Sports Organisation, is a family business. It has owned and run the Tour de France since the 50s. And the family tree goes vaguely like this. L'Equipe was set up after the Second World War as a successor to L'Auto newspaper. Um, by Emilien Amaury, who's a publisher. So Emilien Amaury ran L'Equipe and therefore the Tour de France from the late 1940s, early 1950s onwards. Emilien Amaury sadly died in a riding accident, a horse riding accident actually, in 1977 and left the company to his children. And I don't know the full details of this, James, but there was a protracted inheritance discussion between Francine and Philippe, the two children, and the result of the legal wrangling was that Francine got the magazines, Philippe got the tour and the newspapers. Philippe, who ran the Tour de France, and like he, he died in 2006, and the company was taken over by his widow, Marie Odile. So Marie Odile is still alive, but she's effectively retired, although she's still st- still involved. And her children, her and Philippe's children, Jean-Étienne and Aurore, now run ASO in the Tour de France. So it's a very interesting interview, actually. I mean, obviously, they're very well media trained, very conscious of what they're saying, and they're not going to be the most controversial interviewees. But um, there are some fascinating snippets, such as Aurore was on an exchange with a host family in the UK. She was actually in the UK during the summer of 1987, And she remembers the family watching the Tour de France. Uh, That was the year that Stephen Roach won. And seeing her dad on television, she didn't say anything because she felt it would be pretentious. But I thought that must have been quite an unusual experience of watching the Tour de France on television, on Channel 4 in the UK. But you did the photographs for this piece, James. So tell me, what were they like in person?
3: Well, I've known uh, Jean-Etienne for a while, just cordially at different presentations and different events. It's the first time I've met Aurore. She works with some of the more behind-the-scenes things and some of the legal stuff. She went to law school. And for being as as powerful and for, you know, they all went to all the best schools and everything, they're both very unpretentious, which goes in keeping with the newspapers they run uh, or they've run, you know, I mean, they had, the, uh, obviously, for a long time, they had, uh, or they, have, they keep, and for a long time, they had Parisien, which is just a daily, everyday newspaper. And then they have this, Event, the most popular annual event in the world, called the Tour de France. So they understand, uh, I think, that the need to be rooted in in French culture and society, and very much are aware of those things. But it's just very easygoing, easy to talk to. Um, I did not ask him about the uh, the, the power struggle back in the seventies. I did not. I didn't go there.
2: <laughs> what goes on in the Amory family stays in the Amory family, I think. But it was a very good get as well by Maria David. These two don't give many interviews out at, or I don't think I've seen any of this length anywhere. So fantastic work by Maria to organise and execute that one. Back to cyclists, our staff writer Rachel Jarry interviewed Charlotte Kuhl, who's the probably the the biggest up and coming sprint star in cycling at the moment, and you know a lot of the talk in the last season or two has been about Lorena Wiebes being. You know, effectively an equivalent to Mark Cavendish on the women's side of cycling, that she was so dominant and talented that she was just going to win everything for the years. And suddenly Charlotte Cool has appeared, you know, ex-teammate of Weber's, and now leading Team DSM and has had some great results. I had a chat with Rachel earlier about the experience of interviewing Charlotte. So here is the audio from that. I'm here with our staff writer, Rachel Jerry, who interviewed Charlotte Kuhl, rising star of sprinting for Ruler 120. So, Rachel, tell us a bit more about Charlotte Kuhl.
1: Well, she's got an interesting story because her background is as a lead out rider for Lorena Weeber's in Lorena Wiebes' formative years as becoming one of the best sprinters in the world. So she was never a sprinter herself. She was just always known for the job that she did for other people. And then when Lorena Weebus left Team DSM last year, it was Charlotte's turn to step up and have her own chances at sprinting, which she's taken on incredibly well. She won in the UAE Tour at the start of this year, beating Weebs, which no one expected. And it's finally given women's cycling fans the rivalry in sprinting that everyone's wanted for some time now because Weebus was so dominant before. Um, so looking ahead to the tour... You know, the two of them sprinting out against each other, expecting that to be really exciting. She's had quite an interesting pathway into the sport. She didn't start out in cycling, started out in speed skating, which is quite common in the Netherlands, I think. And obviously there are parallels between that sport and cycling as well. The adrenaline, the aerodynamics, the drafting, everything like that.
2: That transition from speed skating into cycling, you said it was quite a common one. They're encouraged to train on the bike, aren't they, during the summer? and skate in the winter. Crossover crossover's quite strong there f- physically.
1: Yeah, I think his name's Nils van He's the world champion uh, speed skater. He said he did something like 30 hours on the bike in the lead up to to training for speed skating competitions, which is a lot of hours to do. And you can really see the parallels. I think there's a lot of brands even that cross over creating like uh, era helmets for speed skating and helmets in cycling, for example. And like the way they do speed skating in those lines to get the draft, it's really similar to how you would if you were in a breakaway in a road race. It's also pretty high risk and high adrenaline, which is very similar to cycling.
2: Onto cycling. Historically, when, when lead-out riders have tried to transition into sprinters, hasn't always worked out that well. I mean, the physical characteristics and strengths are just a little bit different and different enough when the margins are tight to you know, be the difference between winning and losing. And cool was Lorena Weber's lead-out at DSM. But she seems to have had no trouble whatsoever adapting. Was she a, a sprinter masquerading as a lead-out rider or does she have the skill set for both?
1: I think where her strengths are are definitely in her ability to read a race. So she can really tactically, she knows where the right wheels are to follow. She knows who the best person is to follow in the sprint, just to make sure that she gets herself in the right place using the least amount of energy possible. And I think that characteristic is good for a sprinter and for a lead out rider. And you can kind of see in her sprints now that Cool doesn't always follow her teammates exactly. And if she feels like she needs to you know, get on another wheel, which isn't her lead out rider. She will kind of similar to Mark Cavendish, I suppose. You see him do it sometimes in the men's side. He can really skirt the wheels. And if he thinks his lead out rider is going a bit too early, he'll back off and get on the back of another team. And she does that as well. And also before she signed up for Team DSM, she was on Team NXTG, which was an under 23 development team. And she got on that team because of her ability to win races. And that's why DSM picked her up because she was winning UCI 1.1 races before she got on Team DSM. So she was a winner, but she said that she still chose to go to DSM knowing she would be a lead out rider because she understood how much she could learn from someone like Weavis and how important it was to hone her skills as a lead out rider. And she thought that that could help her as a sprinter, which is quite an unusual way to do it, I suppose. But like you say, it has really worked for her.
2: I was struck reading the feature, which is really interesting and insightful, like how dispassionately she described her sprinting. She seems quite analytical and logical about it and seems to have a very clear head. Yeah. Sprints are generally a hot mess, aren't they? Like there's movement, they're dynamic. You don't have time to strategize and think, you have to act. So those two things seem quite different from each other she seems to be able to handle it
1: when I was writing that feature I spoke to a couple of her current and former teammates just to try and get a bit more of a picture about who she was and I think what came through to me from speaking to those people is that she just has this incredible level of confidence and it's not arrogance it's just a calm you know self-assured confidence and that's what you need to be a sprinter and she just goes into the race thinking that she's going to win and that's as simple as it is and she even said that it's just second nature to her and she comes out of a race and sometimes she thinks, what did I just do? You know, she can't even remember thinking about making those decisions. It just comes naturally to her. She just knows what to do. It's like second nature. So I think either some people have it and some people don't. that's why there's so few amazing sprinters in cycling, because it's a really unique skill set to have to be able to make those decisions in that split second. The minute you stop and you think about it, the, the opportunity has gone. And that's what she's really
2: good at. So Rachel's feature, uh, headline Ice Cool, is in Ruler 120. Rachel, thanks very much. Thank you. So that was Rachel Jerry. The next feature, James, River Deep Mountains High, is it's about the Gavda And This is one of my favourite features in the magazine. As we often allude to, we like at Ruler to go for the less obvious angles and not to do the same thing over and over again. And this feature stems from just an idea I had myself about having spent time in the Pyrenees and often driven through, you know, I've, I've driven through the Pyrenees most summers since the early 2000s. And it's kind of a, a recurring thing that's just been on the edge of my vision all that time. And I'd never really noticed it or never really focused on it, but was kind of conscious of it. And it's a river called the Gave de Peau. And I'd always just cross bridges and there'd be a little sign on the bridge saying Gave de Peau, seeing this many many times in different places i suddenly realized that the tour de france has its own river which is the Gave de poet it, it runs from high up on the franco-spanish border uh, from a place called the Serre de gavani runs all the way down past the col de Tourmelay, past the col d'aubisque past l'ousadidin past cotteret and uh, autocam all places famous for the tour de france it, it goes on to lourdes and through Po, obviously, uh, by which time it's joined other rivers, and it's much bigger by this point, that flows all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. And it just suddenly occurred that, you know, we always write about the mountains of the Tour de France and the roads, but we never write about the rivers. So I got hold of Pierre Carre, who's a French cycling journalist, very, very good one, who is from the Pyrenees, and got hold of David Powell, who is a photographer who's contributed to Rulo in the past? The most recent job he did was uh, portraits of Jai Hindley for uh, our edition in the Rulo 113. And David Powell, he lives in Girona, which is not too long a drive from where the Gav starts. So called up Pierre, and he was only too happy to do do the feature. Called up David, and he was up for photographing the river. And I, I told him, you know, it doesn't look like the road goes that close to the source so just see where you get and then just take photos you know called around the col de tourmalay in poe and lord if you can and just get the atmosphere of the river and david went above and beyond he hiked all the way up to the source at the cercle de gavani and got photographs of the waterfall up there beautiful beautiful spot and i love this feature just because it's you know the, the tour de france for me is is about everything but it's the geography of france that really appeals to me so I called up Pierre to ask him a bit more about the region and the river, so here is the audio of that chat. I'm joined by Pierre Carré, freelance cycling journalist and journalism teacher, and Pierre also works for L'Equipe Television. Pierre is from the Pyrenees and his feature River Deep Mountains High is about the Gave de Pau, a river which runs past some of cycling's most iconic locations in France's southern mountain range. Pierre also writes about food news and culture. I first came across Pierre's work when he was a staff writer at Pro Cycling many years ago and we've worked together a few times over the years though his River Deep Mountains High feature is his first for Rouleur. So Pierre thank you for joining us on Rouleur Conversations you must be gearing up for the Tour de France now.
0: Yeah, thank you very much indeed, and uh, yeah, I'm very excited uh, just uh, ahead of the Tour de France, and thank you very much. I'm, fi- I'm feeling privileged to, to write for Rouleur about my home region, and which is about certainly uh, the Tour de France deep roots, cycling deep roots, because du Pau is definitely, maybe, well, it's definitely where cycling is born.
2: Yeah, so you're from the Pyrenees, but where exactly? Yeah.
0: Well, this is um, a little village between Lourdes and Tarbes. So, this is more at the foot of the high climbs, let's say, Pomalé, Col d'Aspin, Otacam. And we are very, very close from Gave de
2: So, you, you know, the Gave de has been constant in your life as a backdrop. Um, tell us more about it. First of all, Gav means uh,
0: river in a uh, quite old Patois. So the Gave de Po is a Tour de France river, and this is also the Pyrenean river. There are two different rivers coming from the mountains, actually. One is Gave de pau the other one is La Dur, and they all merge to go to the Atlantic Ocean. And Gave de Po starts from Obisque, one side of the Tourmalet, Rotacan, Cotteret, Lusardyden, it all sounds very cyclist. And I remember when I was a kid and visiting my grandparents who lived in Lourdes, we sometimes went to the sanctuary where the Holy Virgin is supposed to have uh, appeared. It was such a nice uh, place with a beautiful and quiet scenery. Some people find it religious. I find it personally... Um, very calm, very relaxing. And the Gave de Peau, it's so beautiful. Even the speed of the Gave de Peau is quiet and charming. It's not too fast, it's not too slow. That's really the right speed.
2: Yeah. And you spoke with Hubert Arbe for this feature, and you have to be quite a high level of cycling nerd to have heard of Hubert Arbe. I'm vaguely aware of him, um, but tell us yeah. more about Hubert Ah, yeah.
0: Hubert is, is, is such a nice person. He is from the Pyrenees, well, nearly at, at the bottom of koldo He literally grew up on the banks of the Gave de Pau. And Hubert remains, well, famous in cycling history because he was a guy who picked up Bernard Hinault after Hinault pulled out in Pau in the nineteen eighty Tour de France. He's uh, domestic for... Four Tour de France victories, one-giro victory. And he also was domestic when Lucien Van Nîmes claimed the Tour de France in 1976. Yeah. So Bernard has got a very special history with the
2: Pyrenees, with Gave de pau and with the Tour de France. Yeah. And you've mentioned there's an irony in that a lot of the cyclists who come from the Pyrenees are not at all climbers. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah that's that's very funny they are they are domestics <laughs> maybe it has something to do with the way people just believe they are you know this is a place where people are very humble late in the 19th century aristocrats from Paris from Great Britain, they loved traveling to the Pyrenees. So they came by train, then on coaches, they went to what was going to be ski resorts like Côtre. So they traveled to there and local farmers were the people helping the aristocrats. They were like domestics. And it's quite funny to see the Pyrenean cyclists have been great domestics too. So that's
2: maybe something in the Pyrenean spirit. Yeah. You've also given us an educational tangent into the Bèarn patois So I speak a bit of French, Pierre, but when I saw your Bèarn patois in the feature, I did not understand a word of it. So you can tell, is it very different from French?
0: It has nothing to do. Um, because, you know, France is, uh, is cut in two different sides. There is uh, the long d'oil uh, in the northern part, and... In Southwest, we speak something very different, which is maybe more s- Spanish uh, at some point. It's very different, d- difficult to understand. I can't understand myself. And so there is the Occitan language. And there are some sub-languages and sub-languages and sub-sub-sub. And it, goes to some, it leads to some Patois, very difficult to understand. I'm not sure some
2: people could uh, still understand it. Yeah. And that leads me to ask, Pierre, what is different for you about the Pyrenees compared to the rest of France? Oh, it's far from everywhere. It's a blessing, you know. If you look at the
0: Middle Age, Pyrenees were very apart. They were not really following uh, the royal rules from Paris. Well, keep in mind, Pyrenees are closer from Madrid than from Paris. So, it's almost like an independent land with its own rules. Back to the middle age, women could vote and people could vote. There was kind of democracy within uh, the Pyrenean valleys. People just uh, sat around the fire and uh, they spoke together. They tried to solve the issues like, uh, well, I lost a coal. uh oh well, you stole my coal. Uh, is Are we in Spain or are we in France? Because the border has changed many, 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 many times. So local people had to find their own rules. And I guess, I I think these rules were much more democratic, much more human than the ones decided by the French uh, crown in Paris. So it has always been a very independent land with people with some, let's say, some free minds.
2: And very last question, Pierre, which is a bit more general. What should we be looking out for in the 2023 Tour de France? And what are the really big stories from France, from the home country of the race?
0: I'm very excited by the Puy-de-Dôme return. Like everyone, and I know there is a, a great piece in Roller about Puy-de-Dôme. Mm. That's exciting. It's a place of France, um, puy de where people just... Uh, they don't believe you can go and have some, some rest. And uh, many people like to go to Provence, to Brittany, to not to Puy-de-Dôme. And that's that's really a shame because the region is lovely, it's green, it's peaceful.
2: I love to call it like a, a second Pyrenees. It does sound like the Pyrenees. So if you read French, Pierre's pieces for Le Temps and Les Jours are some of the best long form and colour writing on the Tour de France. And I'd recommend searching them out when you're watching the race this year. Pierre, thank you for joining us on Ruler Conversations. Merci beaucoup. Merci, Ed. Uh, that was Pierre Carey. James, have you noticed the gav de Peau on your travels through the Pyrenees?
3: <laughs> you know, Ed, uh, I've been sitting here and I, was, I just wanted to say one thing. One of the things I love about working with you is that I may have lived in France for 30 years, but you still teach me things about France. The Gave de Poe is another one of those things that no, I I, I this is something I, I've I I learned through Rouleur. And it's a wonderful reportage. Pierre is is tremendous and very knowledgeable. And it's this is his backyard. He he lives down uh uh down around Tarb, I think.
2: The photographs are brilliant. It was hard to edit them down actually. I'll look at putting the gallery online or something, because it, it's, it's a beautiful spot. And like I say, that that river, it's been running alongside those roads since the roads were built. And for me, you know it's part of the backdrop and context of the Tour de France and the Pyrenees. Um, so from flowers to flowers, James, how do you like that? Uh, oh, nice, 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 nice. Like we've already mentioned, the cover of the mag, which I just cannot express enough how beautiful I find it, is of... Flow, you know, illustration of flowers that are presented to the rides of the tour de france and we've got a companion piece called little bundles of joy which we just put together again between between me and you this one because i realized that flowers they again they are something we see every day at the tour de france and probably don't notice them we talk about the riders and the jersey that they are presented with on the podium. And we talk about the little cute lion that they get for the Crédit Lyonnais lion, which admittedly is is cute, but never about the flowers. So I thought, well, part of the iconography of the Tour de France as well, of the landscape. And, you know, as a cycling photographer, you must be thankful for the fields of sunflowers and the fields of lavender that are the backdrop to the peloton as they make their way through France.
3: It's such an iconic part of the tour, and it's really hard uh, not to come away, at least with one uh, sunflower shot during the tour. It's almost a caricature in some ways, um, but yet you can't not do it, right? It's just, it's such a part of the tour. Ignoring a, a, a great uh, sunflower field would be like, uh, ignoring the Alpe you just can't not do it. This perspective of photographing the bouquets and the flowers and the making of them uh, was a totally different perspective and it was interesting we went after it and we were like okay well how does it actually work does the tour contact a florist in every village that finishes and prepare it or do they have them shipped out out of Paris uh, and just drop at the finishes of each village I didn't know but the tour organization did put us in contact with the the company that is in charge of the all the bouquets they have a whole uh, what they call Feuille de Root. They have a, you know, what each bouquet needs to look like, what flowers should be in there. You know, obviously yellow jersey, it's more yellow. Uh, the, pink, the polka dot jersey has red and white. The green jersey has more green. The white has more white. They put me in contact with a, uh, a florist uh, here in France that they work with. And they work with different florists around the country, depending on where the tour goes. And they call them up and say, we need this many bouquets for this day. And they do it. It changes every year depending on the route, but the problem was getting the big problem was getting a florist who had enough yellow flowers, the right yellow flowers before the month of July because you know it's not sunflower season yet. <laughs> they were struggling to get kind of combination of flowers that make a typical yellow Jersey bouquet. So it was a, it was a little bit more of a challenge than we thought, but it was a lot of fun to do.
2: When I asked ASO about this, they did say, I mean, they're not that prescriptive about the flowers you know you have to work with what you what you can get in the region and the, but they did say they've got to be a certain size they' got to be 35 to 40 centimeters around and delivered with with water because they get delivered in the morning they've got to sit around all day so you don't want to be presenting riders with dead dry flowers by the time the afternoon comes around but I also spoke to a few people and press officers about what happens to the bouquets after the presentation. Some riders obviously throw them to the crowd. That's probably the probably the easiest way to deal with them because they don't have to worry about them sitting on the team bus for the next week and dying. But some riders, some teams, they they, they take them back to the hotel and present them to the hotel that they're staying in. Sometimes the riders even keep them. Uh, Lizzie Dignan, for example, told me that she kept the bouquet that she got at the 2012 Olympic Games road race where she was second Um, she had dried and mounted and she still has those flowers so I thought that was a fascinating feature again very much part of tour culture but a part of tour culture which we just take for granted so much that we barely even notice it so I thought I would redress that balance there's also there's iconography in the history of the tour about flowers such as André Le Duc who I think won uh, he won tours in the 1920s, maybe. It's a long time ago. But his autobiography was called Une Fleur sur le guidon, which is a, a flower on the handlebars. And there's a famous story about Wim Van Est, a Dutch rider who was wearing the yellow jersey, uh, crashed uh, on the Coldor bisque and was sitting there dazed on the on the side of the mountain off the edge of the road. And one of his teammates shouted to him that he looked like a buttercup sitting there on the mountainside so there's a feature called little bundles of joy about flowers in the tour and lastly there's a very interesting interview feature by isabel best uh, called Allez betsy which is with betsy king now here's another one of those serendipitous chances that sometimes hit magazine editors when they're looking for or waiting for inspiration is that i was reading breakaway which is a book by Sam Apt who's a you know very close friend and colleague of yours over the, over the years James he wrote this book after the 1984 tour he mentioned Betsy King in the book because the 1984 tour de france was also the the first resurrection of the tour de france feminam which ran concurrently with the the second half of the men's race through the late 1980s so sam apt being pretty good at covering every angle with the tour wrote also about the women's tour de france and wrote, mentioned betsy king and just mentioned the fact that she had taken part in bordeaux paris which is a defunct race which one of the oldest classics on the calendar which met its demise in the 1980s 1990s not that long ago it was very very long it was Hundreds of kilometres long, like 540, I think maybe is the thing that leads to mind. And Betsy King was invited to ride it because it was an open event, not a men's professional event. Uh, She rode it and I thought, well, that's an interesting story. I can't remember if I've heard that before. And that very same week, Isabel Best pitched a feature about Betsy King who had ridden Bordeaux Paris in 1984 so I thought that's going in that fits with the Tour de France mag because she rode the Tour de France and so we ran the interview with Isabel about Betsy King and I'm sure you've read the piece James and you know you you were involved in selecting the photographs for it which were by or a photographer based in America called Henry Hung and what a story what a what a force of nature what a character and what amazing achievements and what a lifetime.
3: Well what a pioneer yeah, I mean, I very much remember Sam's book, Breakaway, it inspired me to be a better bike racer. And then we became friends and, and colleagues and we actually did 10 tours de France together and he was a pioneer. So it's great that you, uh, you, you've refound that that chapter. Uh, Betsy, yeah, I mean, I remember when I was just getting the sport reading about her and, and you know, this was a time when, when the women's tour was held. They finished, you know, in the same Finnish towns and they finished a few hours earlier. And I always thought this would be a great idea. I mean, get rid of the caravan, right? Let's just, I'd rather see a women's bike race, uh, you know, as another bike race come through than the caravan, which I'm not a big fan of. Sorry. Um, And I I know, I think it would be just tremendous to have both the races finishing on the same day. And that's what actually happened back then. But she was such a pioneer participating in those races and then doing iconic races. Yeah, nearly 600 kilometers per Bordeaux-Perry. It was just It was crazy. So it was a tremendous find. It's really serendipitous that that you get pitched this story this same week you're actually reading about it. So it's tremendous. It it goes in great with the magazine. She looks wonderful and uh, full of life. And I think the story shows that.
2: Isabel's really got to the, you know, had a fantastic chat with Betsy King. And not just her achievements as a cyclist, but she just comes across as an absolute force of nature. And it was a privilege to have have this feature in the magazine. So the Tourfan magazine also features a recon of Strade Bianchi with the FDG Suez team, an explore feature set in London, starting and finishing from the Lucky Saint pub in Marylebone, and lots, lots more. James, thank you so much for appearing on Ruler Conversations this week. Thank you. And uh, Ruler 120, the tours issue, is out now and is available to subscribe on ruler.cc. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen.